0: Church, it's good to be with you this morning. I would ask that you please open your Bibles in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 21. And this morning we are going to be looking at and studying verses 1 to 11. Matthew 21 verses 1 to 11. Perhaps you have heard that... The most dangerous place for genuine Christianity is a secular nation or a progressive state or a liberal city. Perhaps you have heard that the most challenging mission field is where Christ is not known or altogether rejected. But what if the opposite is true? What if the most dangerous place for biblical Christianity is not the godless society, but the socially conservative one? what some people call God's country, what others refer to as the Bible Belt. You see, it is not in the irreligious community where Christianity finds its biggest threat, but the context in which Christ appears to be embraced, appreciated, And wholly recognized. For it is quite difficult to discern true worship, legitimate devotion, and authentic faith. You see, it is in the conservative context where everybody has a form of godliness, there is a church on every corner, everybody grows. Drinking the same watered down Christian Kool Aid. Everybody has an affinity for religious talk and conservative media, no? It is in the conservative context where you develop a Christian vernacular, a Christian vocabulary, a Christian framework. You learn the drills. You memorize the scriptures. You go to camps. You embrace the rites and the customs and no one questions it. No one examines it. No one challenges it. It is normal. It is expected. It is common. The gospel is assumed, God is assumed, Jesus is assumed, Christianity is also assumed. It is in a context like ours that saying I am a Christian is as unimpressive as saying I'm a Republican. No one is surprised by it, no one is shocked by it, no one is outraged by it, and that, brothers and sisters, is frightening. What makes a Christian in a context like ours? A profession saying the right things. You see, but Jesus in Matthew 15, citing the book of Isaiah in relation to the religious folk, he said the following, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from it. In vain they worship Jesus is saying that it is quite possible for you to profess Christ without being in Christ. For you to have the right form without its essence. For you to say the right things without believing them. For you to have the right devotion while missing the object of that devotion. For you to believe in an illusion. And this is dangerous Because whatever is assumed is never tested. And Matthew, in the passage that we are about to study, wants us to see the lengths one can go in their admiration of Jesus, in their praises to Jesus, in their devotion to Jesus, even in their profession of faith in Jesus, while remaining but almost a Christian. That much knowledge can go where true conversion never follows. That zeal can go where real change never catches up. Where a profession of faith can go where true repentance is never experienced. And you see, every section in this gospel has a purpose. Some sections are meant for our education, Other sections are meant for our encouragement. There are some pericopes that are meant for correction while others are meant for hope. But passages like the one we are about to study are meant for reflection. Matthew placed this story where he did with all the trimmings and all the historical facts and and all the literary contours to provoke the reader to stop. sometimes we need to stop and Matthew wants us to stop he wants us to reflect and he wants us to examine ourselves did you know that examination is a beautiful thing particularly as it relates to our faith examination is one of the tools one of the conduits that God uses to bring assurance to his people you see, Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, he throws a warning to the Christians in Corinth. And he tells them, examine yourselves. Okay, Paul, why, why do you want us to examine ourselves? To see. Right, Paul, you want, us to, you want us to examine ourselves to see. To see what? Whether you are in the faith. Whether your faith is legitimate. Whether your faith is authentic. And then he says, test yourselves. Contrary to popular opinion, examination doesn't foster doubt, but it surely exposes who we truly are. So according to Matthew, brothers and sisters, how far can we go in our external demonstration of religious affection while remaining but almost a Christian? quite far. Let's read the text. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say to them, the Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Uh, The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them under cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread them, Their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And and the crowds that went before him that followed him were shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered along with the crowds into Jerusalem and the whole city was stirred up, literally shaken by what had taken place. And they all began to ask, who is this? And the crowds responded, oh, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. We find ourselves at a crucial juncture in the redemptive story. This is Jesus' last week. And what Paul used to call the fullness of time is about to find its ultimate fulfillment. But Matthew has prepared us for this time, no? He has told us at various points in the narrative that Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem. He also told us that that Jesus told the disciples that he needed to go to Jerusalem to die. The disciples didn't get it. So it is Sunday at the beginning of an important Jewish tradition. During the month of Nisan or the month of April, the Jews would celebrate something called the Passover week in commemoration of God's deliverance of his people out of the land of Egypt. During this time, thousands of of diaspora pilgrims settled throughout the Mediterranean would come to celebrate this important tradition the closest thing that we have to this type of pilgrimage is the Muslim hatch to Mecca. The population in Jerusalem will be around 30,000 people, but during this time the population will swell to 180,000 people. We're talking about thousands about thousands of people travelling by foot to celebrate this important feast. In Jerusalem. And Matthew places this story in this important historical context because Jesus, as well as his disciples and the crowds of followers, were part of thousands of people traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. At the end of chapter 20, Matthew tells us that Jesus is around 17 miles from Jerusalem near the city of Jericho. But now at the beginning of chapter 21, Jesus is around three miles from Jerusalem near the city of Bethphage. It is at this moment that Jesus decides to tell his disciples to go to the nearest village and find a colt and a donkey. Because he needed them to make his entrance into Jerusalem. And he tells them, if anyone asks you why are you untying the colt and the donkey, tell them that the Lord needs them. And this is important because this is the first time that Jesus uses the word kurios or Lord to refer to himself, which highlights one point. He's not concealing anything anymore, but he has gone full deity on his disciples, but his disciples didn't get it. The disciples obey the command. They go to the nearest village. They get the colt and the donkey. They brought them to Jesus, and Jesus sat, sat on the donkey and is ready and was ready for this strange event. Matthew tells us that whatever happened and whatever is going to happen is the fulfillment of a prophecy found in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, and the book of Isaiah, chapter 62. And he cites the prophecy, no? Verse 5 says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. In other words, whatever happened is not a random event, but something that God had decreed before eternity passed, and he registered that in the Old Testament, signifying that the promises of God will always come to pass. So Jesus begins the last leg of his journey down into Jerusalem. And as he is descending down the slopes of Mount Olives, something strange happens. Matthew changes his focus from Jesus to an important character in the gospel narrative, the crowds. And I'm sure you have read the crowds many times throughout the narrative of Matthew. Matthew. And maybe you have not paid too much attention to the crowds, but the crowds play a very important role in this gospel narrative. Matthew mentions the crowds 40 times in 28 chapters, and he does so for a reason. If you remember, at the end of chapter 4, Matthew tells us that the fame of Jesus began to spread throughout the regions of Syria, and Decapolis, and Judea, and Jerusalem, and beyond the Jordan. And he also tells us that followers from all those regions began to follow Jesus. It all started with a few followers, but then it grew into the hundreds, and then into the thousands. The crowds, a very important key character in this narrative. And it is important for us to trace What Matthew has told us about the crowds in order to understand what happens in verses 8 to 11. For what happens in verse 8 and verse 9 is the pinnacle of something that has been developing in the backdrop of Jesus' ministry throughout the years. Matthew has told us that the crowds became devout followers of Jesus. Matthew has told us that the crowds were impressed by Jesus, that the crowds were astonished by the teachings of Jesus, that the crowds became witnesses of the miracles of Jesus, that the crowds were perplexed by the power of Jesus, that that, that the crowds were were moved by the gravitas that came out of Jesus. Jesus that the crowds glorified God for the authority that he gave to these men that many call Jesus. And now in chapter 21, verses eight and nine, we find the highest expression of adoration, praises, admiration, and devotion from the crowds. Matthew tells us that, that the crowds began to spread their cloaks on the road. Isn't that strange? points to the book of Kings, and and this was sort of an improvised red carpet symbolizing reverence and worship to a king. He also tells us that they began to cut palm trees, and they they began to to wave them at, at, at Jesus, symbolizing a royal progression. Matthew also tells us that they began to shout, Hosanna to the son of David. That word Hosanna means save us now. They were citing Psalm 118, what is known as the Hallel. They were recognizing that this Jesus was the the real son of David, the Messiah. They were also shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's worship. And they were also shouting Hosanna to the highest, in the highest. Recognizing that this son of David or Messiah, this Christ needed to be exalted, even and celebrated and adored in heaven. And Matthew wants us to ask this question. Did you notice their devotion? Did you notice their adoration? Did you notice their praises? Did you notice their worship? You see, they are doing the right things and they are saying the right things, right? It's all a fraud. It's fraudulent. The whole thing is not authentic. It is not legitimate. It is not real. Why? Because it is not rooted in genuine faith, but in a selfish ambition masqueraded as faith. And through this pericope, through this example, Matthew wants to show us the pathology of an almost Christian. And he, he, he is saying that this pathology is rooted in a fundamental problem, which is the first thing that I want us to see. The root problem of the almost Christian is a fatal misunderstanding of Jesus. The root problem of an almost Christian is a fatal misunderstanding of Jesus. What was the root problem? A fatal misunderstanding of Jesus. You see, it was a subtle misunderstanding, but it was fatal nevertheless. Verse 10 and verse 11 says, And when he entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, the whole city was shaken, and they began to ask, Who is this? Listen to the response of the crowds. This is the prophet. This is the prophet Jesus. And it is interesting because Matthew is the only one who adds this question at the end of this event. And he does so for a reason. Who is this Jesus? The city asked. Listen to the response of the crowds. This is a prophet. For them, Jesus was a prophet. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked Peter, Peter, who do they say that I am? And Peter responds, well, uh, yeah, some of them believe that you are John the Baptist. Well, that's a prophet. Others think that you are Elijah. That is a prophet. Others think that you are Jeremiah. That is a prophet. Others think that you are one of the prophets. In verse 46 of Matthew 21 The Bible says that religious leaders were afraid of the crowds because they esteemed Jesus to be a prophet. You see, when you hear the word prophet, maybe you think of it in a spiritual sense, but for them, this word had a political connotation. They thought that Jesus was the greater Moses promising the Old Testament. Deuteronomy um, 1815 says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like... Moses, they thought that this Jesus was the promised Elijah in the Old Testament. Micah 4, 5 says, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet. For them, this Jesus was a promised prophet, and he was. And you may be thinking that I have lost my mind. Nope. Don't miss this. They thought that this prophet sent from God was a political figure who would come to dethrone the Roman Empire, to eradicate the oppression and the pain, to establish his kingdom on earth, and to reign with them. So when they were saying, this is the prophet Jesus, they were not looking at him as the one who would come to save them from their sins but they assumed this is the one who would come to give us what we want power freedom victory and earthly peace so their praises and their admiration and their adoration and their devotion and their profession of, of faith was not rooted None of them were rooted in genuine faith, but in an assumed faith, in a fatally flawed faith, in a misguided faith, in a men centered faith, in a pretentious faith, in a faith grounded in what they wanted Jesus to do for them, and Jesus knew that. In fact, John chapter 2. The Apostle John tells us that during this week, many people believed in him, but he didn't entrust himself to them, for they knew their hearts. They knew what was in men. So they saw Jesus as a greater human, not as God. And listen to me. Any definition of Jesus that begins with his humanity will end up distorting his real identity. Who is this Jesus? It is the most important question of the hour and one many assumed its answer. Who is this Jesus? Did you know that there are many assumed Jesus nowadays? There are many assumed Jesus in our culture, and there are many assumed Jesus in evangelicalism. Let me mention some of them to you. There is the I stand at the door and knock Jesus. This Jesus is, Patiently waits for you to open the door since he cannot overcome your resistance. But there is also the needy Jesus. This Jesus gets his heart broken really easily. He gets sad when you don't obey him. There is the apologetic Jesus. This Jesus does not want to offend anyone. He hates controversial topics. He hates confrontation. And his arguments always die the death of a thousand qualifications. There is also the upper middle class Jesus. This Jesus is all about comfort. It is all about you, what you want, your preferences. There is the romantic Jesus. This is the one that most Christian radio stations promote, no? This Jesus is clingy and, and he's overly sentimental and he's overly expressive about how he feels about you. There is also the patriotic Jesus. This Jesus only speaks English. He is Republican. And American is God's chosen people. <laughs> and you know it's true. There is the liberation Jesus. This, this is all about deliverance. But not, not spiritual deliverance. It's all about physical deliverance. There is the Dr. Phil Jesus. And he's all about principles, you know, principles to overcome your your anger and your sadness and your loneliness and your depression. There is also the hipster, Jesus. This Jesus is all about adapting to the culture since he cannot change it. And there is also the prosperity, Jesus. It's all about you becoming wealthy, you becoming rich even though he was dead poor when he was on earth. Yeah, all of these Jesus are sold to you with Christian language, with biblical language, but none of them are Jesus. None of them are the real Jesus. They are all assumed, but they are not real. The problem of the crowds and the problem of the almost Christian Is a fatal understanding of who Jesus is. And this misunderstanding is fatal because when this Jesus does not meet your expectations, you will turn your back on him. Which leads me to the second point. The peril for the almost Christian. And the peril for the almost Christian is that you are, listen to me. One crisis of belief away from rejecting and crucifying Jesus in your heart. What happened to the crowds? Interesting. Chapter 22 all the way to chapter 27 tells us that that as they moved along with Jesus and entered into Jerusalem, um, the religious leaders began to plot against Jesus. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. They wanted to arrest Jesus. But they knew they couldn't do it unless they had the approval of the crowds. So they began to spread lies and deception. And the whole motivation was to prove to them that this Jesus was a fraud. That this Jesus was not the real Messiah. That this Jesus was not the real king. How did they do that? Listen. This guy came on here on a donkey and not with an army. What kind of king is that? Did you notice that he didn't overthrow the Roman Empire? What kind of king is that? Did you notice that he didn't eradicate our pain and oppression? What kind of king is that? Did you notice that he was telling people that he was going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? What kind of liar is that? So what happened? Tradition had it that once a year, Pilate needed to release one prisoner to the crowds. And on one side, he had innocent Jesus. On the other side, he had the insurrectionist Barabbas. And he looks at the crowds and he tells the crowds, all right, people, who do you want me to release? And they all shouted, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. Now he is surprised because he heard of the commotion that happened when he was entering into Jerusalem. So, so he's like, whoa, 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 hold on a second. This guy is innocent. What has he done? I'm going to ask you again, who do you want me to release? And everybody, the same people who were shouting Hosanna to the son of David at once said, Give us Barabbas. Now now Pilate is is confused, and and, and he's looking at Jesus, and he's looking at the crowds, and, and he said, all right, people, I'll give you Barabbas, but what do you want me to do with this Jesus? The same crowds who were shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, began to shout, away with him, crucify him. Now, if Pilate was surprised, and then he was confused, he's now perplexed. And he looks at Jesus, and he looks at the crowds, and And he tells the crowd, but, but isn't he your king? Were you not shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Isn't he the king of the Jews? And the same crowds who were shouting Hosanna in the highest said, we have no king but Caesar. Now, Pilate is, is, is at a loss of words. He doesn't want to show any sign of weakness, so he goes and washes his hands, and, and he looks at the crowds, and he tells the crowds, all right, listen, the blood of this innocent man is on you. See to it yourselves. And the same people who were cutting palm branches and who were um, uh, spreading their cloaks on the road began to say, let his blood be on us and on our children. How could that happen? A fatal misunderstanding of Jesus led them to misunderstand his mission, and when he did not come through, they all rejected him and crucified him. They all had a crisis of belief. What about you? What would you do if this Jesus does not do what you want him to do? What would you do if this Jesus does not meet your expectations? What if you realize that the Jesus you have believed in all this time is not the real Jesus and the real Jesus is more demanding than you thought? What if this Jesus is not your consultant or your bellhop or or your genie? Someone that you can tame, what are you going to do? Are you going to say away with him, crucify him? Please know that the time will come when this Jesus will not do what you want him to do. And that is when you will realize in whom you have believed all this time. According to research, 66% of all the kiddos who are in this place will abandon the church by the time they leave high school. And the root problem, the root cause of that problem is that they never had an encounter with the real Jesus. According to research, a great majority of the people that go to church and have made professions of faith have never experienced a real change in their conduct. because they have never encountered the real Jesus. And as soon as that assumed faith is tested, they will all fall away. Deconstruction, I'm sure you've heard that word lately a lot on social media. Deconstruction, there is no such a thing as a deconstruction, deconstruction It's not deconstruction, because there was nothing built there in the first place. It was all a shell. The peril for the almost Christian is that you are one crisis of belief away from realizing that you were a fraud. But there is hope. Mm. There is hope. But this is not a wishy-washy hope. This is not a light hope. This is a difficult hope because it demands everything you've got. And the hope for the almost Christian is that you must embrace Jesus not only as your Savior but also as your Lord. In a period of 57 days, the crowds who shouted Hosanna and crucified Jesus, were now at the feet of the apostle Peter in the book of Acts chapter two. And I want you to pay attention to what Peter is saying in that sermon. It is glorious. Listen to what he says. Let all the house of Israel, the daughter of Zion, therefore know, know, understand Comprehend that this Jesus, God has made him both Lord and Christ, Lord and Messiah, Lord and Savior, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were caught to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter responded, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Oh beautiful for, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, and everyone whom the Lord or our God calls to himself and, and with many other words he bore witness and and continued to exhort them, telling them, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41 So those who received his word were baptized and, and they were added, God added them to the church about 3,000 souls. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that amazing? I mean, the same people who crucified Jesus had an encounter with the real Jesus, whom according to Peter, is not only Savior, but also Lord. And it was when they understood the real identity of Jesus that they were caught to the heart. It was on these terms. It was only after understanding that Jesus was both Savior and Lord and that that conviction brought an understanding of their need of Jesus and their need of real repentance. And they asked, what should we do? You see, and Peter's response was not, all right, fellas, why don't you accept Jesus into your heart? No, no, repent of your sins. Save yourself from this crooked generation. Run to Jesus and you will experience peace, real peace, and you will experience real freedom. Amen. 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 What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? Huh? That Jesus must be the Lord over your entire life. That Jesus must be Lord over your thoughts, over your convictions, over your opinions, over your worldview, over your conduct, over your motivation, your words, your marriage, your children, your work, what you do for fun, your entertainment, your political opinions. Jesus must be Lord over every single area of your life. You see, brothers and sisters, some of you have embraced Jesus as your Savior, but you're still in charge. And that's not real Christianity. You want to be a real Christian, you must relinquish all control. He must be the boss, because he is, whether you like it or not. Amen? Amen. Amen. Hmm. So many, so many people, I hear so many people here about, you know, say something like, well, we want, we want revival in our land. And, and, and we, want, we want revival in our nation. And we want revival in our country. Do you want real revival? It begins in the household of God. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, he didn't go there and started singing kumbaya. He went into the temple and he attacked the circus, the household of God had become. Revival happens when we move from an almost Christianity to a biblical Christianity. How does that happen? First, you must understand that this Jesus is Savior but also Lord The second thing that we must do is that we must repent of our sins and we must run to him. We must believe in him in submission so that our expectations are aligned to his will. And the third thing that we must do is a wholehearted devotion to the word of God and to the fellowship of believers. so that we can achieve a unity the world cannot comprehend. I love how the physician look ends this portion of Acts 2. Listen to what he says. And they, and they, hmm. who's they? The crowds who are now converted What was the first thing they did? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, the word of God, and the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. Aren't we longing for that all to fall upon us? verse 44 ends with this and all who believed were divided no and all who believed were together and they had all things in common we're not talking about preferences We're talking about that they had all the things that matter in common. Here's a question that I have for you. Can that be said of us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you, for you are a good God, and through your word, you confront us. And, and through your word, you bring freedom, Father. I pray for my brothers and my sisters. I pray, Lord, that this word would, would penetrate and, and would bring conviction and would compel us all, Father, all of us, to do your will. Who is this Jesus? Is the most important question of the hour. And I pray, Father, that we get the answer right. For everything depends on it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.